Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. David Warp. Dr. Warp is Associate Dean for Research at the Swanson School of Engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. He is also the John A. Swanson Professor of Bioengineering with secondary appointments in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery and Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Pittsburgh. He also serves as co-director of the Center for Medical Innovation and the director of the Vascular Bioengineering Laboratory. Dr. Warp, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. So, uh, I know you have many interests and activities, but I thought today we could ask you to highlight tissue-engineered vascular graft that you've been pioneering. Can you share us a little bit about this technology? Sure. There's a great clinical need for small diameter vascular grafts or bypass grafts. Roughly one million procedures are performed annually just in this country alone that utilize a small diameter uh, vascular graft of some sort. Most of these are the coronary artery bypass grafts that get most of the press, but there's also lower extremity bypass grafting and even arteriovenous access grafting for dialysis access. In each of these cases, the diameter or the inner bore of the graft is small such that there's a reaction at the blood and material interface that that can lead to rapid occlusion or reclotting, if you will, that leads to the same problem that you had originally that you're trying to correct, and that's uh, blockage of blood flow. So since synthetic materials do not work in these applications, so typically surgeons will use biological materials, and that's usually derived from the patient in the form of a vein. The saphenous vein is the typical material of choice. This is the longest vein in the body. It runs the length of the leg, and it's similar in size to the coronary artery. But one of the problems is that veins are designed to be veins. They're not designed to be arteries. And as a result, just the mechanical differences or the hemodynamic differences that they're exposed to when they're transposed to the arterial circulation can lead to, to downstream failure of even these grafts. So despite those being the, the gold standard for small diameter arterial grafting, these are not ideal. So my lab, in collaboration with Dr. Bill Wagner here in the McGowan Institute and others, including now Peter Rubin, Dr. Rubin is our chair of the plastic surgery department. So the three of us have been working together for some time on uh, stem cell-based tissue-engineered vascular grafts. And these would be autologous stem cells extracted from the patient in need of the graft that we can volumetrically seed within uh, porous tubular scaffolds, biodegradable scaffolds. Dr. Wagner, his lab fabricates these scaffolds and they're designed to dissolve away after some time. So they provide mechanical support early on. They provide a home for the seeded cells and the seeded cells then encourage regeneration and remodeling of the scaffold into a functional arterial replacement. The benefit of this is that it's cellular in nature. It's biological, of course, in nature, but the cells are extracted from the patient themselves, so there is no issue with rejection or any incompatibility in that, in that way. 
So let me go back and ask you to clarify my impression about the transposition of a vein into a, an artery or in the application of serving as an artery. So the, my understanding is that veins run at relatively low pressure, arteries are high pressure, and so when you move the vein into a high pressure regime, you get adverse consequences. That's right. I often say it's a stranger in a strange land. So the vein living happily as a vein under these low pressure conditions is, is now being asked to carry higher pressure, about six times the pressure, as well as higher blood flow. So you have an increased hemodynamic forces on the wall of the vein, and that leads to what I call mechanical shock. And that mechanical shock can then lead to what's known as intimal hyperplasia. And that's just the thickening of the vein wall that is in response to this increased mechanical load and that thickening can go out of control and the vein just thickens into itself and closes off its inner bore. So I've also heard the hypothesis that uh, cardiac bypass procedures fail in large part over a period of years because of this phenomenon. That's right. Of course, some will fail sooner than others. I think the average, the last I read, was about seven years after bypass is the average. But of course, there's a, there's a large range of failure times. But eventually, these vein grafts will fail. If the patient does not outlive the graft, the vein grafts will eventually fail. I guess the other complication is that in some cases, I think people have more trouble recovering from the harvesting of the saphenous vein from the leg than they do from the bypass procedure itself. That's right. These patients obviously, by definition, are in uh, circulatory distress and they do not have great circulation to their extremities as a result of their weakened heart. And as a result, any wounds that are made in the lower extremity, in this case the leg in in terms of harvesting the, the vein, the healing response can be dysfunctional and that can lead to some some complications, as you say. So where are we with regard to the new technology? We've used a variety of cell types through the years. We've used bone marrow-derived stem cells. We've used muscle-derived stem cells. And most recently, we've been using adipose-derived mesenchymal stem cells. And this is where Dr. Rubin comes in, who is a a pioneer, a world expert on adipose-derived mesenchymal stem cells. So these are derived from fat, Obviously, fat is not scarce in the Western world, so I like to often joke that someday we can offer a free liposuction with your bypass graft. The cells are very plentiful in the fat, and we are envisioning a bedside type of approach where the fat is extracted and the cellular material is isolated from that fat, and those cells are seeded into these biodegradable scaffolds, and the scaffolds can then be used as the bypass graft and implanted potentially very quickly after seeding. So how do you make the graft? We'll start with the scaffold, and again, this is Dr. Wagner's lab's expertise, but I'll just give you a high-level description of it. It's a polyesterurethane urea is the material that we've used. Now, now hypothetically, this same approach could be used with other materials, but this material has worked well for us over the years. The material is processed in two different ways. There's a thermal-induced phase separation, which leads to a controllably porous inner core of the graft, and then that is coated with a fibrous layer using electrospinning. 
So it's the same material, electrospun fibers over top of a, an inner core of porous material. It's somewhat biomimetic if you think about it. If you look at the, the different layers of a blood vessel, you have the very cell-rich media and the very fibrous adventitia of a blood vessel. We then take our cell material and we seed them volumetrically or bulk seeding within the scaffold. This is done using a rotational vacuum seeding device that we've developed in the lab. This took seeding efficiencies from around 10% up to above 90% when we developed the system. Typical seeding for tubular scaffolds was done almost like a tube rotating on a rotisserie. The cells are placed inside of the scaffold and, and rotated, and it's hoped that the cells will just crawl into the pores. Well, in this way, we're using the scaffold as a filter. We introduce the cells through a cell suspension under pressure on the inside of the tube of the tubular scaffold under uh, vacuum, so it's rotating in a vacuum chamber, and that encourages the the liquid phase of the cell culture suspension to exude out through the pores of the scaffold and the cells become entrapped within the scaffold. And as I said, we have about 90, uh, over 90% efficiency in terms of the numbers of cells that we start with that get into the scaffold. And this is important because of, of course, we're using human cell material and you don't want any waste. And in fact, one of the potential limitations of this that we need to overcome with regards to clinical translation is indeed getting the appropriate cell number that's required from patients in order to seed a graft the size that would be necessary for human application. So having this high efficiency is very important. So you mentioned this vision of a, you call a bedside procedure. So you would harvest the fat from the patient, separate the cellular material, and then how long does it take to produce the graft? The bulk of our work has been done with seeding the cells after they have been isolated from the fat and then expanding the cells in culture to the proper numbers. Once those cells are expanded to the proper numbers, we then seed them into the scaffold and then we take that construct and that itself is put into a dynamic culture system for 48 hours. And after 48 hours, we have a relatively tissue-like tube that can be implanted as a bypass graft. The time when the fat is extracted from the patient to the time that we're implanting is probably over a week. That's not acceptable for most cases. Most surgeons like to have things that are off the shelf. Now, luckily, most bypass surgeries are non-emergent. About 75% of them are non-emergent. So even with that duration of time required for preparation, we would still potentially hit a large segment of that population. We have been working on getting that time period down. And one of the ways that we're doing it is by instead of extracting the cells using a cell culture method where we purify the mesenchymal stem cells from the fat, we are looking at using what's known as the stromal vascular fraction and that is what can be obtained. It's a very cell-rich layer that can be obtained using a centrifugation that would be done at bedside. So you take the fat, you put it through some chemical digestion and you put it in a centrifuge and the stromal vascular fraction can be obtained relatively quickly within minutes. That can be done at bedside. 
we're working now on assessing whether that stromal vascular fraction cells can be used in place of the mesenchymal stem cells. And so far, we get evidence that they are just as useful as the mesenchymal stem cells. So that would take our preparation time down from, as I said, over a week to minutes or an hour or so at most. And that's what we're envisioning can be done at bedside. So that would also reduce the time and culture. There's two parts of our process that initially were involved cell culture or tissue culture. And one of those was the expansion of the cells, as I mentioned, or even prior to that, the isolation of the cells from the fat would be done in culture. And then expansion of the cells to the proper number would be done in culture. And then culturing the construct in that dynamic culture system, as I mentioned, is also another exposure of cell culture media. And it's likely that the FDA will not look highly upon any product that is exposed to the cell culture step prior to implantation. So if we can eliminate those steps, then that should clear the hurdles, at least some of the regulatory hurdles that would be in the way of translation. Dr. Warp, are there any more hurdles in terms of moving this technology into clinical use? Well, one of them is uh, taking a hard look at the patient population that we're targeting. Most of our work up until recently has been done utilizing fat and, of course, stem cells or stromal vascular fraction extracted from patients that are undergoing elective liposuction. And if you think about who those are, those are typically younger, relatively healthy patients. Certainly not the type of patient that you would expect to be in need of a coronary bypass graft, for example. So we started looking at uh, more realistic patient demographics, such as uh, patients that are older, patients that perhaps have coexisting conditions, such as diabetes. Diabetes is known to be highly correlated with cardiovascular disease. So when we look at patients, for example, that are older but are not diabetic, we do indeed see less of a success rate in terms of the patency or the success of these grafts in our animal model. And if we look at patients that are diabetic, but not elderly, they're still relatively young, but they're diabetic, we actually see an even more drastic decrease in the success rate. So it's, it's clear that even though this works very well with healthy young individuals, that the target populations, say the elderly and diabetic, will require some modification. So we are now working on some technologies that could overcome those hurdles. Another hurdle that we're starting to address is the size of the graft. I mentioned our animal model is a rat. The rat aorta is where we implant these to study the remodeling and regeneration of the construct into a living, viable artery. The rat aorta is on the order of, uh, at least the segment that we're, we're testing, is about a centimeter in length and about three millimeters in diameter. Whereas in the human, say the coronary artery or even a lower extremity artery would be even more pronounced, the the size difference is significant. So we're talking instead of one centimeter long, about 15 centimeters long, and instead of three millimeters in in outer diameter, 
we're talking more like seven millimeters in outer diameter. So if you do the math with regards to the volume of material that we have to seed, that's orders of magnitude higher. To get the same density of cells that we seed in the larger human-sized scaffold, if you will, it will require orders of magnitude higher numbers of cells. That's another reason why we started looking at the stromal vascular fraction, because we can get many more cells from the stromal vascular fraction than we could if we just extracted mesenchymal stem cells within the stromal vascular fraction. Now another thing that we are starting to look at is up till recently we've treated our animal model kind of as a black box. We know what we have when we implant the construct but we and we know what we have when we explant it. Typically eight weeks is our time point because that's when we get adequate regeneration of arterial structure and cellularity, but we don't know what happens in between those two time points. So we're interested in things like what is the fate of the cells? So the cells that we put in, we know are gone after eight weeks. We don't know when they leave the scaffold and we don't know what happens to them. We don't know if they die and are just eliminated from natural processes of the body or if the cells are migrating out and going somewhere else. You know, if, the, if the cells are migrating downstream and they're going to the lung or the liver or the brain, we don't know what they're doing once they get there. So one of the important questions we have to answer is what is the fate of the cells that we implant? Now, we know that the cells are important. If we take the same scaffold and we implant the scaffold without the cells, we get almost immediate clotting of the graft. And with the cells in place, the mesenchymal stem cells, we get almost 100% success up to eight weeks or even up to a year. We've had some of these things implanted for a year. So the cells are doing something, and we don't know exactly what that something is. We know that one role that the cells play is that they are providing an antithrombogenic milieu within the graft. So in other words, with the cells in place within the scaffold and implanted as a graft, they are providing antithrombogenic enzymes that are preventing blood from clotting on the surface. The other thing that we know that the cells are doing is that they're calling in cells from the host. So those cells from the host are coming in, repopulating the scaffold, and that's what remodels and regenerates the scaffold into a viable arterial conduit. At first, when we started doing this work, we assumed it was the stem cells themselves that were differentiating into the vascular cell types, the smooth muscle cells and the endothelial cells. But we were surprised when we probed a little deeper and, and found that it was indeed cells from the host that we were seeing in the, the remodeled and regenerated arterial segment and not the source or seeded cells. That's very interesting because I had presumed that the cells that were in the scaffold was the start of forming new tissue, which you just told us is it's a bridge to the new tissue, but it's not the source of the new tissue. That's right, which potentially opens the door for other strategies that we are pursuing right now. We have an NIH R01 grant that was recently funded that is examining the use of what we're calling artificial stem cells, and that would encapsulate 
the products of the stem cells and have the products released in an artificial manner instead of using actual cells within the scaffold that would lead to the same potential results. In other words, secreting these same enzymes, these same, the same chemicals that would provide the anthrothrombogenic surface that would provide the signals that call in the host cells for repopulation of the scaffold. So Dr. Warp, this is all very interesting. Of course, the question many of our listeners will have, when might this be available for a clinical trial? You know, that's a million-dollar question. I often answer that question by saying five years, and I've, I've said five years now for over five years. Not soon enough. As I get older, <laughs> I am interested in even more in this technology myself. So it's conceivably within five years, I can say that honestly, but like I said, I said that five years ago honestly too. It's an important lesson in terms of the time it takes to move these technologies from the bench to the bedside. That's right. Dr. Warb, thank you for joining us today and sharing this pioneering work. We will post on the podcast website the uh, web address of Dr. Warp's laboratory website so that you can further explore these technologies if you wish. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast series. Until we meet again, thank you for listening. <music>